Do you ever get tired of having the same old merry-go-round of evening meals that you stick to out of convenience and confidence that you can do them? Like sometimes you really can't face lasagna night and you yearn for something a bit more exotic, exciting or healthy. I cook lots for myself and I admit I can be guilty of this. But then I also like a bit of fresh once in a while and personally I found Gusto to be the perfect solution. Since it was founded in 2012, Gusto has been giving you everything you need to create the most incredible home-cooked meals from scratch, delivering to your door perfectly pre-portioned fresh ingredients, which means zero food waste for them and you, and simple-to-follow recipe cards of which you can choose from over 250 each month, delivered to your door when you want them to. I've tried it for a while now and I've been sent several that are exactly as I've described, I've had ingredients and recipes of stuff I'd never normally have thought of and I've made them in the same or even less time than what I'd usually have and with the healthy option there also, you're onto a winner with them. There's something for everyone. To clinch it, one TV advert for Gusto even features the riff from my favourite song by my favourite band, One to Another by The Charlatans. I was already sold on them, but I was then sold more. Good tastes in food and music. Cooking tasty varied meals is something that everyone should enjoy doing, even after a long day at work, and whether you're a seasoned chef or you struggle to crack an egg, Gusto provides the solutions for healthy, irresistible meals for you. Head to gusto.co.uk and use code TRUECRIMEENTHUSIAST for 60% off your first box and 20% off all boxes for two months. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, that regular depth into the more obscure and unfamiliar tales of true crime that the UK and Ireland has to offer. Bringing you these are myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The more celebrated of the pair of us, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, is about also. And of course, you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts who keep the show striving forward, and my privilege to do so. It is as wonderful as always having you join us today, which I thank you kindly for doing so, and I do hope that as you have, then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. Before we get on to the tale of darkness this time around, and it is a grim one this one, big thanks go out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this time around to new friends Nige Travis, Anita Valentine, Catherine, Lynn Lockwood, Sarah Jerno and Grant Rin, plus Ginger and Charm, Deborah Elms and Jacqueline Lucier, who have each opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I mispronounced anybody's name there. You absolutely rule, folks. Thank you so much for your support. Now, stuff is waiting to be sent out to some, but there is a bit of a problem over here with the Royal Mail at the moment after their recent cyber attack ref sending stuff internationally and I don't want stuff lying around a warehouse waiting to be sent out, only to be lost before it does. So hang fire, I haven't forgotten about you at all. In the meantime, I do hope that you've had a chance to at least make a start on the full series worth plus of bonus tales of the enthusiast that there is. If, like the aforementioned, you think to yourself that you're intrigued by titles such as The Cannibal and the Cowboy, Wicked Beyond Belief, you deserve a medal for that, or the latest tale that's out, Home Invasion, to name just a few, and you want to hear the tales behind them, 
just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there, always remembering that podcast suffix, or just use the ever-present link in the episode show notes that will take you right to the show's page and you can be hearing these and more quicker than Katie Price on her next husband. The tale I've chosen this time around is this series, Houses of Blood episode, and for it, we're off back to somewhere we've visited several times before on The Enthusiast, the West Midlands, and to Dudley, a large market town considered the centre of what is known as the Black Country area of the West Midlands. Named so reportedly from its links to the Industrial Revolution and the soot that the heavy industries covered the area in, although the 30-foot-thick coal seam close to its surface is another possible origin of the name. Notable points about Dudley, then. As I said, it's one of the birthplaces of the Industrial Revolution. It has a 40-acre zoo and a castle. And notable people to hail from there include comedian Lenny Henry. Perhaps it's a bit of a misnomer, that. Broadcaster and journalist Sue Lawley. Lead singer of one-hit wonder Babylon Zoo, Jazz Man and one of football's most notable characters and biggest rogues, Sam Allardyce. The best stats I could find this time around is that the Titanic's anchor was made in Dudley in 1911, and the tower blocks on the front cover and inner photographs of classic album Led Zeppelin IV were taken in the Eve Hill area of the town. Now, I love this album, I've got it at home, and yet it slipped my mind to mention it, When I was doing a quiz with a friend of mine recently about Led Zeppelin albums, I mentioned 1, 2 and 3, House of the Holy, Coda and so on, but I neglected 4, absolute shocker of me, and I would let John Bonham lamp me one, were he here to be able to, and he bloody would too. Dudley, or more specifically, the adjacent town of Tipton, they tend to get lumped together when searching them out online was back in 2019 the scene of our tale this time, and this one deals with a ghastly crime, a truly senseless one, and a dangerous pair of individuals who, had they not been stopped when they were, would undoubtedly have gone on to do this, or worse, once again, having a clear taste for it. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including injury detail, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so please use discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for a Houses of Blood episode that I've entitled Flat of Horrors. In the aftermath of the crime and events that I'm about to recount to you, there were several descriptions of 42-year-old Julia Rawson, a resident of Green Park Road in the Cates Hill area of Dudley, given and available and all of them were glowing. You get a real picture of a woman with a zest for life, music and creativity, a kind and generous person and good friend to all who knew her, the real life and soul of the party. Originally hailing from Tittensaw, near Stoke-on-Trent in Staffordshire, Julia had in the 1990s attended Stafford Art College as a student, making many friends easily with her outgoing and kind nature. Often to be found covered in paint, evidence of the love of creativity and art that she had in abundance and was talented at. Julia's motto was, a happy child is a mucky child, which she extended to an allotment that she kept and grew her own vegetables on, always happily accompanied by her dog, which she named Mitzi Moo. 
Another deep interest that Julia had was that of the pagan religion, and for several years she'd attended the Dudley Moot, a monthly social meetup for pagans interested in the topic. And it was possibly here, or possibly whilst in art college, that Julia, Juju as she was affectionately known, had met the woman who was to become her best friend, and indeed, for several years, her partner, Elaine Higginson. Together with another friend Julia met there through Elaine, Debbie Maskell, the three soon became inseparable and brought a smile to all they met, but in particular, Julia. A friend of all three, Steve Gibbons, described later, You'd always know Julia was there because she'd come and put her head on your shoulder. She'd always greet people with a hug. She was just a very happy, tactile person. If Julia, Elaine and Debbie were out, you knew you were going to have a good time, for it was impossible to be in a bad mood if they turned up. They were like the three naughty school kids at the back of the class. She was always like sunshine. She always had this huge cheeky grin, and it was impossible not to laugh when you were with her. Another friend, Norma DeWolf, added, She was like a big kid. It's like she never grew up. Everything was just, wow, look at that. She was a lovely character, very straight-talking. Some people would try and put it diplomatically, but she would just say it straight. She'd always be the centre of attention. A lot of people knew her, so she never had any qualms about walking into a pub alone because she knew she would see someone she knew from the market or the shop. She was a very unique character, a dreamer, always seeking to express, a very dynamic soul who everyone adored. I think she could be too trusting though, and that was her downfall. She saw the good in everyone. Now the market stall and the shop that Norma have just mentioned here was a venture that Julia and Elaine had gone into years before, selling pagan or Wiccan type products, chime balls, dream catchers, candles, mung beans and incense and all that, along with pagan statues and artefacts. The stall in Dudley Market had done well enough that over time, Elaine and Julia, though by then not romantically involved any longer, but still best friends in each other's closest confidant, had moved into running their own shop doing this, called Phoenix in the town's Fountain Arcade. Still remaining close and as part of the same friendship group, Elaine and Julia still worked and socialised together, and it was with Elaine and some other friends that Julia had spent the afternoon of Saturday the 11th of May 2019 with, having a few drinks and socialising around Birmingham. These things tend to get a bit messy, don't they? They did last time I was in Birmingham anyway, for an RAF reunion. And by the early evening, Julia was fair to say, a bit inebriated. With all intentions of heading back home, as her friends had, Julia had gotten herself on a bus heading back to her home in Cates Hill. Or, so she thought at the time, anyway. Her friends thought it unusual that they hadn't even had so much as a text from Julia the next day were alarmed when by Monday the 13th she still hadn't been in touch, or turned up for work either. By May the 14th, with none of their friends having heard from her, her family drawing a blank and no sign of her back at her flat, Elaine was concerned enough to report Julia as a missing person to police. Debbie Maskell, Julia's friend for more than 25 years, later recalled the numbing moment she learned Julia was missing, saying, 
I was coming home from work when someone called me to say one of my friends had gone missing. I asked, what do you mean? Straight away, I had this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach, for I knew something really bad had happened. I knew she wouldn't let Elaine worry. I thought at first Julia had maybe stayed over at a friend's and her phone had died, but I kept getting the sinking feeling in my belly that something bad had happened. A description of Julia was issued to police, six feet tall and slim, with short, tousled dark hair and last seen wearing a grey t-shirt, grey zip-fronted hooded top, dark grey jeans and carrying a black and white shoulder bag. And searches for her began in earnest, for for all they learned about Julia, they were quickly convinced this wasn't someone going off by themselves randomly. A combination of her friends painstakingly retracing her steps from where they left her, searching everywhere they possibly could, and police making inquiries and trawling through CCTV covering the Dudley area. As time passed, with no sign of Julia, however, her friends and family were filled with ever more a sense of anxiety and foreboding. Debbie Maskell described later how she would constantly have to pass Julia's flat and recalled the painful memory. I'd look up at the window and I would see her paintbrushes in a little sun catcher. I'd just look at them and be like, where are you? But by the time Julia had been missing for nine days, police had a breakthrough because after a painstaking troll, they had discovered Julia on CCTV after the time she was last seen by her friends. Julia had indeed gotten on a bus that Saturday evening, but it was the wrong bus as to that she had required, and she had instead ended up a short time later in a different part of Dudley, nearer to the town centre. As we've said, the type of person who could quite happily walk into a pub by herself and be instantly comfortable, and perhaps still wanting to carry the night on, CCTV had captured Julia at 8.05pm entering the cork and bottle micropub on Dudley's New Mill Street, where CCTV taken from the pub shows Julia spending the next few hours there, talking to various customers. The same CCTV camera then captured another customer entering the pub at 10.46pm. A burly looking bearded individual wearing a flat cap and carrying a green plastic carrier bag who took a seat at the opposite end of the bar to where Julia was sat talking to one of the customers. Only a few minutes after he'd entered, Julia can be seen making her way over to this man and engaging him in conversation. The pair had spent the next few hours talking, the drinks flowing, and at one point through the CCTV, the man his face obscured periodically by the bar light, is seen showing Julia distinctive tattoos that he had on each forearm. Getting on so well did the two appear to be that they were seen leaving the pub together at about 2am and hailing a taxi. This CCTV footage of Julia's meeting with a stranger was circulated throughout West Midlands Police's briefing systems and a breakthrough came on Wednesday, May the 22nd a little over a week after Julia was reported missing, when a sharp-eyed security guard in Poundland in Dudley Town Centre who had seen it contacted police officers claiming to have seen a male shopping within the town who matched the description of the man last seen with Julia in the shared footage. Police body cam footage that was aired later, and indeed is available to see, shows the moment on busy Wolverhampton Street in Dudley 
Later that same day, where two officers responding to the report locate, cross the road and stop the man. 28-year-old Nathan Maynard Ellis and his partner, 23-year-old David Leasley, as they carried shopping bags along the street and telling them, We're looking for a woman who's been missing for about 11 days. We've checked CCTV and she's seen with someone who matches your description. She's been missing for 11 days now, so obviously we need to find her. Maynard Ellis, seen wearing a dark-coloured flat cap, grey polo shirt and dark-coloured trousers, acts in disbelief, as police say. Because you look like the person we've seen on CCTV, we just need to get some details off you. Maynard Ellis also refuses to give police his name, replying, 11 days? Why have I got to give you details on my name? Just for looking like someone, I don't really want to. An off-duty PCSO who had joined colleagues then produces a phone that appears to show a picture of Julia and asks him, Do you know anyone by that name? Maynard Ellis remarks about looking like the person Julia was last seen with and saying if he'd been responsible for anything, he would have taken off. At one point, he even laughs before saying, I'd have probably chopped all my hair off though. He then calmly shakes his head repeatedly when he's asked if he knows Julia, before saying, whilst gesturing towards his partner, Leesley, The only women I know are in his family. The only people I know are my partner and his family. This is my partner. When he was shown a picture of the stranger with Julia from the CCTV recordings at the pub, he denied it was him, saying he hadn't been into the bottle and cork in months. During the conversation, Maynard Ellis said he couldn't even remember if he'd gotten into a taxi with a woman in the last couple of weeks. But officers were confident Maynard Ellis was the man caught on CCTV, confident it was him as, as I said, because the footage had shown the man showing Julia some distinctive tattoos on his arms, and Maynard Ellis had a large, clearly visible, devil tattoo on his left forearm. As a result, Maynard Ellis, along with Leesley, who was initially treated as a witness, but was arrested at his mother's home two days later, was arrested on suspicion of kidnapping Julia. The following day, the missing persons inquiry was passed over to the force's homicide team, as sadly, there was no proof that Julia was still alive. The senior officer in charge of the investigation, Detective Inspector Jim Colclough, said at the time, Extensive inquiries have led us to the strong belief that Julia has died. We're still working to establish the full circumstances around her disappearance, and our thoughts are with her family at what is a very traumatic time for them. Officers then commenced a search of the flat that the couple shared, a small housing association flat in Mission Drive, a quiet leafy cul-de-sac in Tipton, and what they found there was enough to make them think putting it the best way I possibly can, fork me. The tiny flat was crammed with various reptiles in tanks, disturbing latex masks that Maynard Ellis had made of iconic characters from horror films, and stuffed creatures, including spiders and snakes, hanging on the walls. There were also large collections of horror film memorabilia, including Chucky doll figures from the Child's Play series, Michael Myers wielding his knife of choice, there was undoubtedly a hockey mask there somewhere, a razor glove, and much more terrifying, I thought, 
the head of the master from the original Salem's Lot, which I remember proper filling my pants with shrill with when I first saw that bastard years ago. The bit in the jail and the bit in the kitchen. Bloody hellfire. Also in the flat was a workbench covered with bizarre baby doll heads and a collection of model severed hands, along with paints and adhesives and tools including pliers, drills and an axe. Detectives also found a sizable collection of violent horror films, including the delightful sounding Necromantic 1 and Necromantic 2, which each depict images of decapitation, mutilation and necrophilia as well as a large bookcase crammed full with various books and printouts about true crime and serial killers. Now point of note here, when police searched the flat, various pictures of what they found there were published. I'll share them on the show's Instagram page. And it does look chilling in the context of you seeing them after knowing what had happened there. I wouldn't want a head of the master looking at me ever. As I said, I remember that terrifying me one Halloween years ago, just after Ghostwatch was on and I'm sure some here remember that. But the picture of Maynard Ellis's bookcase was also released, and I'm looking at the titles on it thinking, I've got that, I've got that, I've got that, I've that and that, ooh, I haven't got that, I've got that, and so on. Mine at home would put theirs to shame, like, it was a bit weird, but then of course, I'm a dedicated true crime podcaster and all-around hero rather than a murdering oddball, so I instantly felt better. I will share the pictures on the show's Instagram page, as I said, and you can have a look at the crime bookcase, see how many you've got or read, and make me feel better still. But I digress. There were three other discoveries made that told officers that this was likely where Julia had met her end. Firstly, crammed in next to the horror memorabilia hanging on the wall of their home were a variety of tools, including axes, saws, knives, and other bladed articles. Though one of these weapons was said to have been missing from its clear place on the wall. Secondly, a napkin bearing the nickname Juju was found in Maynard Ellis's bedside cabinet. Julia had handwritten this and given it to him before they left the pub in a taxi 11 days before. Thirdly, the real clincher was that aside from the sinister decor and barring Colin Stagg's bedroom, second worst episode of Peter Andre's 60-minute makeover ever, the other thing police officers noticed about the flat was that the living room carpet had very, very recently been replaced. It still had that strong new carpet smell, you know. When the carpet and underlay were removed, a stain to the middle of the floor was discovered that looked like blood, and sure enough, was discovered to be blood. It was later fast-tracked analysed, and identified as being Julia's blood. But of her body, there was no sign. So where was she? Meanwhile, whilst the search team was going through this flat of horrors, Maynard Ellis was being questioned. As I said, he'd been arrested first, and his partner David Leesley was initially treated as a witness. During an interview on May the 23rd, Maynard Ellis stated that he was not the male on the CCTV with Julia and that on the night in question he was at home with Leesley who indeed gave an alibi for his boyfriend's whereabouts when spoken to but then as the investigation progressed his own involvement became all too apparent. On the strength of the evidence that was being put to him 
The next day, Maynard Ellis provided a prepared statement in which he said that there were many occasions when he'd suffered memory loss, that he had had blackouts, and that sometimes had no recollection of events until they were described back to him. He claimed he didn't recall being in the Bottle and Cork pub on the night that Julia went missing, and once again denied being the person in the CCTV with Julia. But by this time, through further inquiries and further CCTV trawling, amongst other occasions which I shall come on to later, Maynard Ellis had been captured once again on CCTV, this time at the Shiders Lane rubbish tip in nearby Oldbury on Thursday the 16th of May, where, driven there by his mother and on a later trip accompanied by a friend, he was shown disposing of bags of the rolled up old carpet from the flat and a sofa. Posed with this footage, he accepted disposing of the sofa and carpet, but said they were both previously damaged and needed changing, and he claimed he remembered vaguely going to carpet right with Leesley the next day, though he denied asking for the carpet to be fitted urgently, even though it had been on the following Tuesday. He accepted that most of the gory DVDs and macabre books in the flat were his, but he claimed they were there merely to help with his studies in criminology. Detective Inspector Colclough later said, There was a complete denial that he'd had any contact at all with Julia Rawson. He denied being present in the pub. He claimed that he'd had a blackout that weekend and couldn't recall what he'd been up to over the course of the May 11th, 12th and moving into May 13th. With regards to his partner David Leesley, he claimed that during the course of that evening he was present in the flat. He had no knowledge of a female, and in particular, Julia, attending the flat, no knowledge of anyone being hurt or coming to any harm in the flat, and certainly no knowledge of any deposition of body parts. Maynard Ellis has described that he went out that night to meet up with his father. This is something he would regularly do, but generally on a Sunday evening. He described this as being just a chance bus journey and walking to Dudley to see if his dad was out having a drink. We think he probably could have done that a little bit differently and made a prior arrangement. And so from that point of view, Maynard Ellis hasn't given any further insight into why he went out. There was a chance meeting between the two of them. There were no indications at all that this meeting had been arranged or that they knew of each other. It's not lost on us that had different decisions been made, there is every possibility Julia would be alive today. Maynard Ellis could almost answer everything, but when he was shown the napkin that had been found in his bedroom drawer with Juju written on it, the missing woman's well-known nickname, he said that he couldn't remember how this had gotten into the flat. On the 27th of May 2019, Nathan Maynard Ellis and David Leesley appeared before Walsall Magistrates Court, charged with the murder of Julia Rawson and were both remanded in custody to Her Majesty's Prison, Winston Green, in Birmingham. So strong was the evidence, even before Julia's body had been found. Searching for Julia's body then, officers were faced with a daunting task. Within metres of the Mission Drive property, where it was believed she'd been killed, there was a canal, acres of woodland, a disused railway line, tunnels and a large coal deposit area but no CCTV outside the flat to point officers in the right direction as to where Julia may have gone. Fanning outwards from here then, the search for Julia's remains was to last 47 days and was split over these areas, 
with police utilising a range of specialist equipment to do so, including specially trained cadaver search dogs from other areas of the country. On the afternoon of June 12th, a month to the day since Julia was last seen, a search dog on land at the rear of the Sacred Heart Primary School in Tipton found a well-concealed, tightly wrapped parcel which contained human body parts, with another similar bag found approximately 20 metres away. The body parts had been wrapped tightly in black plastic bags and were so well wrapped in the material and concealed in foliage that even on a hot summer's day, there were no flies attracted to the remains or any real scent for police dogs to track, but one was slightly torn which had allowed the dog to pick up on the scent. Each had been meticulously parceled. Recalling the call to where Julia's body was found, Detective Inspector Colclough said, I received a call from search investigators to be informed that they'd made what turned out to be a very grim discovery. It was evident from the first viewing that we had located body parts, and those parts had been found in two separate bags sort of spread from each other over a distance of 20 or so metres. The discovery that was made on the other side of the canal and the waste area sent a shock through the investigation team. I think we all feared the worst would come around the corner. A large cordon was in place in the field that backed onto the Coney Gray Industrial Estate on Coney Gray Road in Tipton, with a small bouquet that was placed touchingly nearby. 17 days later, on the 29th of June, on a disused railway embankment about a mile away from Mission Drive, the rest of Julia's remains, including her severed head, hands and feet, were found. Though the state in which Julia's body was discovered and the decomposition due to the time that had passed since she'd been killed meant investigators were unable to ascertain what had been the cause of Julia's death, the post-mortem later revealed that Julia's hands had been cut off at the wrists, her feet cut off at the ankles and her legs cut off below the hip. Her arms, meanwhile, had been cut off below the shoulders and her spine and torso cut through at waist level while a head was cut off at the neck. Some evidence of attempted burning of the remains was discovered also. West Midlands Police, working in partnership with experts from Warwick University, scanned Julia's remains and 3D images of the body parts were taken and used for when the case was brought to court. Forensic tests on her remains, and in conjunction with these scans, showed her body had been cut into 11 pieces as described, probably using a handheld wood saw with 11 separate uneven cuts used to dismember her body. Chillingly, several of the bones showed evidence of false starts to this cutting, as though sawing has become too difficult and it started again, but from a slightly different position. Horror beyond belief that, isn't it? The butchered remains had then been individually wrapped in black plastic, almost with the care that you would a present, then discarded into three separate bags and dumped close to Maynard Ellis's flat. Poor, poor woman. What a horrific and undignified end. Julie was ultimately laid to rest, much more respectfully, almost a year after her death, in a private family service at Stafford Crematorium on the 15th of April, 2020. 
Julia's friends or family didn't attend the inquest into her death, which was held in Oldbury on the 30th of September of that year, and where Detective Inspector Colclough told the hearing that a forensic post-mortem examination had taken place, and dental records and DNA confirmed beyond question that it was the body of Julia Rawson. However, he added the cause of death was unascertained at present, explaining that tissue samples had since been sent to a number of specialists across the UK for analysis, with the results not expected back until November, leading to a delay in the trial. In light of the ongoing criminal proceedings, Black Country Coroner Zafar Sadiq then suspended the inquest, pending the outcome of the trial. Two months before the inquest, on the 25th of July 2019, David Leesley and Nathan Maynard Ellis both pleaded not guilty to murdering Julia Rawson during their pre-trial plea hearing at Wolverhampton Crown Court, where Prosecution Counsel Karim Khalil KC then outlined what the Crown believed the defence of both would be. He told the court that it was anticipated that Leesley would claim that he was in bed asleep that Saturday night and didn't hear Maynard Ellis or Julia come back to the flat, and that when he awoke in the morning, Maynard Ellis told him that he'd killed someone, but he would say that he didn't see Julia and knew nothing about her dismemberment in the bathroom, other than he guessed that something awful was probably going on in there. However, it was anticipated he would say he saw blood on the sofa and carpet, that he helped to clean the carpet and sofa, and that he helped to dispose of Julia's body parts. Mr Khalil said, In short, he denies taking any part in causing Julia's death or any form of dismemberment. Mr Khalil then outlined what it was believed Maynard Ellis's defence would be, saying, His defence will focus upon his state of mind at the time, and will raise the issue of diminished responsibility, accepting that he did kill Julia, but claiming that his mind was so seriously impaired at the time, that the consequences of his actions should be reduced from murder to manslaughter. When they were in the living room, he claimed she made sexually provocative moves towards him and he was reminded of early traumas in his life, panicked and picked up a rolling pin that happened to be nearby and struck her head several times, causing her to fall to the floor where she became unconscious or partially so. He then took her into the bathroom where he tried to wash her injuries, but at some point he realised that she died. Thereafter, he dismembered her in the bath bagged up her body parts and disposed of the bags. Now, the trial was delayed somewhat longer than anticipated due to a little old thing called the pandemic, but when it did begin on the 8th of October 2020 at Coventry Crown Court, jurors were told that both Maynard Ellis and Leesley had admitted perverting the course of justice by replacing the blood-stained carpet and underlay at the flat and concealment of a corpse although Leesley did not accept and did not participate in any element of dismemberment. Both men denied murder, while Maynard Ellis also denied four rape and attempted rape charges relating to historical allegations made by a woman following his arrest, and relating to alleged incidents in 2007 and 2008, whilst Maynard Ellis was also accused of making a threat to kill in 2010. Opening the prosecution's case at the start of the month-long trial, condensed down as follows. Prosecuting counsel Karim Khalil Casey 
urged jurors to act dispassionately given the especially gruesome allegations, saying in his opening address, The prosecution case can be stated quite shortly. For many years, Maynard Ellis has harboured dark thoughts that have focused mainly on the sexual assault of women and their violent killing. He has shown a particular interest in certain themes involving serial killers and the dismemberment of bodies. His boyfriend, David Leasley, knew of these interests since their flat was full of printed materials, DVDs and videos about serial killers and the violent sexual abuse of women. Maynard Ellis was also artistic, but he put his talent to making reproduction masks of characters from horror movies, many of which were found in the flat. For many years, Maynard Ellis has suffered from mental health problems. We accept that his part in these horrific acts were the actions of a man with a disturbed mind, but they were not, we say, carried out in a state of heightened psychiatric panic. He knew what he wanted to do, and he intended to do exactly what he did. It was the culmination of years of pent-up fantasy and desire. David Leasley knew all about this. Indeed, most of it was on view. Nathan Maynard Ellis had also raped before. You will hear from the complainants in the later accounts on the indictment about how she was sexually assaulted by him. For the most part, she'd kept the dark history to herself. Mr Khalil continued. As you know, the two defendants are accused of the murder of Julia Rawson. She was last seen alive on the night of Saturday, May 11th, 2019, going into the early morning of Sunday, May the 12th, 2019. Julia had spent the Saturday evening with an ex-girlfriend from about three years ago, with whom she'd remained good friends. Julia left to catch the bus home, but she caught the wrong one. She ended up in the Bottle and Cork public house on New Mill Street in Dudley. This is opposite another pub, Ye Old Foundry. As you would anticipate, Julia was seen by a number of people. Late that night, there was a chance meeting between Nathan Maynard Ellis and Julia Rawson. She was drunk, he was not. Jurors heard that Julia was a lesbian, but sometimes was flirtatious with men while drunk, with Mr Khalil continuing. Julia's ex-girlfriend explained that occasionally, when she was drunk, she would sometimes be flirtatious with men, and even have sex with men, but would regret it the next day. That night, she picked up a napkin and wrote a nickname, Juju on it and handed it to Nathan Maynard Ellis and he put it in his pocket. He later put this into a drawer in a cabinet in his bedroom. The note made it clear that she was a lesbian. At about two in the morning, Julia and Nathan Maynard Ellis got into a taxi. Before they arrived at the flat, it's unlikely that Julia would have known that Nathan Maynard Ellis was homosexual. She would also not have known that his boyfriend was in the flat. Furthermore, Julia could not have known that she was about to enter a flat of horrors, but she must have realised this very soon after she went in. He then described the contents of the flat, as you've heard, continuing. One can only imagine the sense of panic that it might have created in her. More disturbing, perhaps, and entirely hidden from her view, was the mental makeup of the man with whom she had just arrived, for, for years, he'd been addicted to thoughts of the violent sexualized killing of women. That night, Julia Rawson was killed in their flat. But that wasn't enough for these two men. 
Her body was then dismembered and each body part was put into black plastic bags. The two men left the flat, carrying her body parts in plastic bags, and walked casually along the nearby canal where they found places in the undergrowth to hide the bags. Some effort was made to burn some of the bags. During the investigation, the two men were spoken to and denied having anything to do with Julia's disappearance, let alone her death. They were lying. Maynard Ellis now accepts he was involved in her death, but he denies that it was murder. Leasley continually denies having anything to do with her death and blames his boyfriend. The jury was then given an overview of what the pathologist who'd carried out the post-mortem found. Mr Khalil told the court there was no evidence of any offensive injuries to the knuckles of either of Julia's hands, which can be caused when someone punches another person, adding, there is no evidence that she attacked anybody. Mr Khalil furthered that there was evidence that Julia had received at least four forceful blows to the back of her head, which the prosecution suggested was with a rolling pin before Maynard Ellis and Leesley then dismembered her body in the bath. An examination of her skull revealed a fracture to her nasal bone, while she'd also sustained a fracture to her neck region, and although this had happened close to the time of death, it was unclear whether these fractures came before death. Apart from the obvious dissection of her body parts, there was no other evidence of any other inflicted injuries. However, Julia's right kidney was missing with Mr Khalil explaining this could be the result of decomposition, loss during dismemberment, or possibly the deliberate removal of the organ to keep as a macabre trophy of the killing. I could well believe that as a possibility, however horrific it may be to consider, I'd well believe it. It's not too much of a reach to imagine someone really into their serial killers, perhaps trying to emulate Jack the Ripper, and his actions upon the body of Catherine Eddowes, is it? Mr Khalil continued by saying that almost all the cuts in Julia's bones were of a similar appearance and had been made by a toothed blade, such as a saw, though there was one cut that could have been made by a straight-bladed instrument, such as a knife. The jury was told of a study performed that showed it took about 20 minutes to cut just one femur with a diameter of 31mm with a serrated blade knife, but under 5 minutes to cut a similar bone with a metal saw. The jury was told an expert had concluded that the cuts had most likely been made by a fine-toothed handheld wood saw, which did not have cross-cut teeth. Mr Khalil then said that no blades that had the particular characteristics of the blades that made the cuts in this case were found in the flat. He told the court that Maynard Ellis and Leesley were both aware of axes and ornamental weaponry, alongside balaclavas and a folding dagger that were found at their flat, and how many knives, saws, axes and other bladed articles were found in the property, but one of the weapons was said to have been missing when it was searched by police. He told the court that there is no explanation for why it was missing, and Leesley had even remarked to police during an interview, it should have been there. He said, We do not know where this or these cutting implements have been hidden or disposed of. Addressing the evidence relating to dismemberment, Mr Khalil said four body parts were found at one site and seven at the other, in weighted down bags, which were found on June 12th 
on June 29th, 2019. Mr Khalil told the jury. There were four individual recoveries of wrapped human remains within four locations within two different areas. Wasteland off Conigree Road and the other nearer to the flat, close to the rear of the Sacred Heart Primary School. The removal of the feet and hands, we say, would not have helped with disposal because they were bagged up and packed with the respective limbs. We suggest that this scale of dismemberment points clearly towards the gruesome fantasy aspect of this case, rather than towards any practical necessity after the death. Because of what these men did to Julia's body that night, and because of the time that passed before her body was found, we cannot show whether, or how, she was sexually assaulted. Why do I say this? First, the police did not find Julia's body in one piece, as was depicted in some of those horror fantasies. Killing Julia was not enough for these men, they cut her into pieces. Second, her parts were not found until June 12th and June 29th, over a month after she'd been killed. Significant decomposition had taken place by then. Julia had been cut up in that flat and dismembered into 11 separate body parts, with an additional flap of skin recorded as a 12th part. It doesn't take much imagination to imagine the appalling scenes that must have unfolded in their flat as Julia was dismembered. But neither man panicked during that dismemberment, and neither man panicked afterwards. Quite the opposite. Nor did they go their separate ways, which might perhaps have suggested that one of them didn't agree with the actions of the other. No, everything they did thereafter showed them to be acting together and doing everything necessary, together, to hide the horrific acts from being discovered. So, what did they do together? They burned the clothing linked to the killing, which had Julia's blood on it, and that was done in an outside incinerator bin at the home of Nathan Maynard Ellis's mother. They put Julia's dismembered body into plastic bags. Mostly under cover of darkness, they walked, together, from the flat along the nearby canal and hid the bags in separate locations. They obviously hoped those body parts would never be discovered. All this evidence provides insight to the dark thoughts in the mind of Nathan Maynard Ellis as he brought Julia home that night. It provides clear evidence that he was not acting alone. We say that everything they did, they did together. Julia cannot have been in their flat for long before she was attacked. We say both these men killed her as part of the fulfilment of Nathan Maynard Ellis's sexually violent fantasies. The jury was to hear testimony that remnants of clothing were found inside an incinerator bin in the back garden of Maynard Ellis's mother's, where, on Sunday, May the 12th, a woman in her garden next door heard the back door to the property open. She could then hear voices in the garden, and soon after, smelled burning and saw plumes of white grey smoke. Calling out to her neighbour, but getting no reply, Mr Khalil said, She was cross and looked over the fence. There she saw Nathan Maynard Ellis and David Leasley standing in the garden, burning something. Upon examination, it turned out to be clothing and a portion of one item, a pair of grey fleece shorts, was covered in spots of blood, later found to be a match for Julia's. Mr Khalil added that the killers even ordered new carpet and underlay from Carpetright the same day, as later on the 12th of May, the manager of Carpetright in Albury 
later told police that Maynard Ellis and Leesley had come into the store. Mr Khalil told the jury, They were an unusual looking couple and the transaction was conducted in an unusual way. Both men went straight to the carpet they wanted and said words to the effect they wanted it fitting urgently. This was arranged for Tuesday, May the 14th. Although the carpet was ordered to cover most of the room, one important further detail was also discussed. They said that they needed one square metre of underlay. By the time this was squared away and ordered to be fitted that Tuesday, even more unusual emergency carpeting, Maynard Ellis and Leesley were beginning to relax somewhat. Maynard Ellis was, certainly, enough so that just later that same evening, CCTV footage shown to the court that had been recovered by investigating officers showed the chilling moment Maynard Ellis leisurely enjoyed a drink at the Fountain Inn in Tipton, seemingly in high spirits as he casually stood alone at the bar, chatting on his mobile, his long hair neatly pulled back into a ponytail, with no outward signs of the horror he just inflicted on his victim less than 24 hours before, displaying anything upon him before he left, just after 11.30pm, or any apprehension for what he was to do the very next morning. The court later heard testimony from a man who lived close to the Konigree Industrial Estate, who just before 6am on the morning of Monday the 13th of May, was having his usual early morning cigarette with a clear view of the waste ground close to the industrial estate, and who saw two men he later identified as the defendants. Mr Khalil described. He noticed two men together. They seemed to be walking casually. He didn't notice anything in their hands, and they seemed to him to be calm. But when he saw them closer up, he thought they looked as if they'd been up all night and hadn't slept. After that, the two men seemed to turn deliberately away from him, and were acting strangely staring ahead and no longer appearing to talk to one another as they had before. Later, when the police put up a cordon around the area, he realised this was where the two men had been walking. It is obvious that he'd seen these defendants out looking for somewhere to dispose of Julia's body parts. Indeed, after scouring CCTV cameras along the canal, Police picked up Maynard Ellis and Leesley walking along the towpath on many occasions. In one clip, the pair can be seen walking side by side, each with carrier bags in their hands. Shortly before this sighting, at about 5.30am that Monday morning, the court heard that Leesley had sent a text message to his manager at the co-op store where he worked, saying he had had to go to hospital with Maynard Ellis early that morning and had had no sleep and asking if it was okay to come into work later on, as he had to go to the pharmacy. Mr Khalil continued, Of course, she agreed, little knowing he hadn't slept for an entirely different reason. He'd been helping his boyfriend dispose of Julia's body parts. When he arrived at work at 2pm, he carried on with the story about Nathan Maynard Ellis being ill. There was some talk about having some carpet fitted on Tuesday, and that Nathan Maynard Ellis might be in hospital so he may have to leave work early. She offered to let him dispose of items in the work tip, but he said they would go to the one local to them. He continued to behave essentially normally. This normal behaviour continued throughout the rest of the day. Leesley had worked, and Maynard Ellis had participated in multiple text message exchanges with his mother and other friends of his, 
all of whom agreed that he seemed fine and happy. Even days later, again in CCTV shown to the court, Maynard still acted like he hadn't a care in the world, which Mr Khalil said showed when on the afternoon of Thursday, May 16th, Maynard Ellis's mother had drove her car to the defendant's flat and helped to move the blood-stained carpet and underlay to the Shidus Lane Public Waste Disposal Centre in Albury. CCTV footage showed Maynard Ellis pulling up in her Ford Cougar, then pulling bags full of blood-stained carpet rolls from the motor and slowly walking up to the correct unit before tossing it in, in front of unsuspecting onlookers. During a second run to the same tip, Maynard Ellis and his mother were helped by a friend, John Foster, who had no idea what Maynard Ellis had done, and was filmed choosing which bin to dump the items in. At one point, Maynard Ellis even casually walked over to speak to a member of staff there to ask, before going back to the car. He and Foster can then be seen throwing a sofa, which had been heavily stained during Julia's horrific murder, into another skip. Police later searched the site to which all the items from the Shider Lane rubbish tip had been transferred and managed to recover this sofa for forensic examination where a trained dog indicated the presence of large blood staining along one edge of one of the sofa's cushions. Blood that had come from Julia Rawson on their old sofa and underneath the newly laid carpet. Mr Khalil continued. So, Neither man showed any signs that something untoward had happened. They went about their daily lives, going to the pub, meeting family and going to work. If only one of them had been responsible for Julia's killing and her dismemberment and the other was shocked at those events. You may wonder at the extraordinary abilities of that other to continue as normal. But of course, we say there is no need to wonder at all because they were both responsible and had carried out the brutal fantasy that had been harboured for so long. I always love to include as much verbatim trial speech in as I possibly can. I'm constantly struck with addiction and how the facts are presented. Just fantastic oratory. Now, I mentioned earlier that Maynard Ellis also faced four rape and attempted rape charges relating to historical allegations made by a woman who had come forward following his arrest and which related to alleged incidents that had happened in 2007 and 2008, as well as a threat to kill against the same woman in 2010. The testimony of the victim, a woman who Maynard Ellis had had a relationship with, in the loosest term, several years before, was presented to the court in statement and tape-recorded interview form, so her anonymity was protected and she didn't have to give evidence under cross-examination. Indeed, she's never been named, and will be referred to here as C.W. The court heard how C.W. and Maynard Ellis began a relationship in 2007, when he was 17 and she was then 15, and how she'd quickly learned of his dark fantasies about the darkest of stuff. Murder, decapitation and necrophilia etc. How he was even back then fascinated by serial killers and violent horror films. She also gave police information about how Maynard Ellis back then saw a psychologist, the main reason being to tell them about his bad dreams, which involved his wish to kill someone and his obsession with pain and death. She said he often spoke about killing women, which he would do so whilst zoning out and playing with a fold-out knife. 
In fact, she claimed that Maynard Ellis was so enthused at the idea that he would carry a black hood or a rope and a knife around with him should the opportunity arise, and that if she didn't shut up, it would be her. She described how he told her that if he killed her, he would put her body into tanks and that no one would find her. She described the location of this fully and even later took the police to where she was talking about. When forcing her to have sex, the more upset she became, saying no, the more aggressive he became and the more he seemed to enjoy it. And on one occasion, Maynard Ellis even tried to cut her breasts, but he was using a blunt scalpel, which left only surface lines. Jurors then heard how in 2007, he had raped the woman by a West Midlands canal. In her police interview recorded the previous year and played to jurors, CW said he pointed at a specific location near the canal. She said, He said he wanted to show me something. He suddenly went from being calm and said if he kills me, that's where he'll put my body. CW told how she was then raped by Maynard Ellis after he made her remove some of her clothing. He had later that year anally raped her whilst on a holiday and attempted this once again in May the following year, following which, and amazing it took this long really, she had ended the relationship. At some stage once this had ended, Maynard Ellis had come out as gay, and when he next saw the woman in 2010, he had threatened to kill her. He even told her he had a gun in the rucksack he was carrying at the time. The account she gave provided striking similarities in details discovered by the police surrounding the murder, dismemberment and disposal of Julia Rawson, which included a link in time between the date of the breakup of their relationship and Julia's death. Mr Khalil said, What motive can she possibly have to give this graphic and painful account after such a long time, unless she is telling the truth? and she genuinely wanted to help the police in the event that Maynard Ellis was identified as being involved in the disappearance of Julia Rawson. During the trial, only Nathan Maynard Ellis gave evidence. His co-defendant and boyfriend Leesley refrained completely from taking the stand. Maynard Ellis, who had been diagnosed with depression and Asperger's syndrome, and who was assisted by an intermediary sitting near the witness box, giving evidence in the third week of the trial, told jurors he was bullied at school, which he just wasn't happy with, but had gone on to college to achieve a distinction on a special effects, film, television and theatre course. Invited to tell the jury about the effect his mental health issues had had on him, the then 30-year-old said, I black out, I just lose a lot of time and can't stand being around enclosed large groups of people. Asked by defence counsel David Mason Casey if he was pretty good at making horror masks, Maynard Ellis responded quite proudly. I left with a distinction from college and I continued to teach myself to progress to a higher grade material and castings and things. It started with me doing charity events for Halloween. Somebody in my friend's family had had cancer and they were trying to raise funds for a cancer ward. I was asked originally to make costumes and do people's makeup and prosthetics. Asked whether an interest in the genre of films and books found at his flat had made him want to try to reenact any of it in real life or take action from a film, Maynard Ellis told jurors, No, 
I've looked at films to make costumes and masks and things, but not to act them out, adding that the content of the films had not made him want to behave in a violent or sadistic way. Addressing the rape allegations levelled against him, Maynard Ellis denied them completely, even so much as making a threat to the complainant. Concerning the night of Julia's death, Maynard Ellis then claimed that Julia had swore at him and hit him once back at the flat, and in response, he had grabbed a rolling pin nearby and struck her, knocking her to the floor. But he came out with the old chestnut that voices had made him do it, as Maynard Ellis claimed he'd stopped taking his prescribed medication around a week before Julia's death. He'd revealed this to Dr. Nicholas Kennedy, who had interviewed Maynard Ellis after he was arrested following Julia's death, and who gave evidence at Coventry Crown Court. Mr. Khalil asked Mr. Kennedy, Did he say he heard voices saying, Stop her, do it now? The voice kept saying, Do it now. Mr. Kennedy replied, Yes. He grabbed something, he thinks it was a rolling pin, and hit her with it several times. The court was told that Julia then fell backwards and hit her head. At this point, Maynard Ellis took her to his bathroom, where he alleged he had tried to clean the blood off her. Mr Kennedy continued. He said he took her to the bathroom and tried to sit her upright. She was breathing strangely, and he kept telling her it was going to be okay. Then she stopped breathing, and after a while, he realised she died. He said his partner was asleep in the bedroom. He said a voice told him to get rid of her, and after a while, he did so. He said he lifted her into the bath and cut into her with a saw. He found it quite hard. He said a voice told him to get on with it. Jurors were told Maynard Ellis began hearing voices aged about 13 years old and in 2012 he was diagnosed with having schizophrenic and autistic traits. Recalling evidence in Dr Kennedy's report, Mr Khalil said Maynard Ellis used to hear two voices, but now mostly hears one, which sounds like a static noise. He said he heard lots of things. The voices were saying all kinds of nasty things, mainly about him. The court then heard about one previous incident in which Maynard Ellis had threatened his mother after he was admitted to health services under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act. Mr Khalil explained, He visited his mother under the influence of alcohol. She told her to make herself safe. He didn't attack his mother, but warned her against him, and she locked herself in her room. The police were called by his sister. Knives were lined up in the kitchen. He sounds a right one him, doesn't he? But, the court heard, Maynard Ellis had also made the revelation to Dr Kennedy that he was a former juror on a case where a man was accused of killing a girl and the defendant in the earlier case had claimed to be the devil and sought diminished responsibility, he told the trial. I mean, what are the chances? Recapping this revelation, all of the forensic, physical and CCTV evidence presented to the court, Maynard Ellis's claims of what happened to Julia, of him hearing voices, and despite Maynard Ellis telling psychiatrists, police and jurors that his only interest in serial killers or sadism was in the context of a criminology course, Mr Khalil said in his closing address that jurors would already have realised just how closely his account of what he did to Julia 
matches his years of violent fantasy. Presiding Mr Justice Sewell then told the jury panel, You have had the directions of law, it's now for you to decide the facts and then reach your verdict. There is absolutely no pressure of time. Take all the time that you need to consider all the matters that are before you. Following a four-week trial, on Monday, November the 9th, 2020, after deliberating for seven hours and 25 minutes, the jury delivered a unanimous verdict, finding serial killer obsessives Nathan Maynard Ellis and his boyfriend David Leasley guilty of the murder of Julia Rawson at the two men's flat of horrors in Tipton. Both men were also convicted of concealment, destruction or disposal of a body and perverting the cause of justice. Maynard Ellis was also found guilty on the four counts of rape, one of attempted rape and making threats to kill that related to the historical allegations made by the woman, C.W., separate to Julia's death that had surfaced following his arrest over her death. Whilst Leesley was present in the dock to hear the jury's verdicts, Maynard Ellis was not in court after being taken ill and losing his sense of taste in prison the previous week. Covid strikes again. Mr Justice Sewell then adjourned sentencing and thanked the jury for their diligence and careful consideration of the case, excusing the jurors from future jury service for the next seven years, telling them, It has been a very demanding case because of the subject matter. I am very conscious of that. Mr Justice Sewell then turned to Julia's friends and family sat in the public gallery, including her former partner, Elaine Higginson, to express his profound sadness for their loss, saying, No sentence could bring full closure. Following the guilty verdict, Julia's family spoke of their deep loss and the manner in which she was killed, saying, Her death has had a devastating impact on us. The mutilation of her body and the callous way in which her remains were scattered has revolted us. We can only pray Julia knew nothing about these abhorrent acts. We are a close and loving family, clinging to each other in an attempt to support each other through this harrowing ordeal, but she'll remain deeply affected and troubled by these events for the rest of our lives because Julia's loss is felt as keenly today as when we heard she had first gone missing. You can't even begin to imagine how feeling about something like that must be, can you? It must be just horrendous beyond belief. Detective Inspector Colclough added, The actions of Maynard Ellis and Leesley are incomprehensible in regards to their complete disregard for Julia, not only in life, but in death by those that are responsible. It's a very tragic case. Julia did nothing wrong that evening. In terms of Julia being dismembered, this added an extra dimension in terms of trauma. Julia's family, friends and the wider community in which this horrific killing has occurred are left devastated by the cruel actions of the pair. I hope the result from court provides some form of closure at the very least for the family so that they can move on and carry their grief forward. It's been a terrible time and my heart really does go out to them. Fortunately, depraved crimes like this are rare, but it's been a complex and emotionally difficult case for us as officers to investigate. However, we were determined to seek justice for Julia and I hope the guilty verdicts provide some solace for her loved ones.
on Monday, December the 21st, 2020, Maynard Ellis and Leesley were both jailed for life at Warwick Crown Court, where Mr Justice Sewell was then sitting, and where he said, passing sentence. You, Maynard Ellis, entered the Bottle and Cork Bar in Dudley. Julia Rawson, a complete stranger to you, had been there for some time. Fatally and tragically, she engaged you in conversation. At about 2am the following morning, you and she returned by taxi to the very small flat in Mission Drive, Tipton, which you shared with your partner Leesley, and where he had remained when you went out that evening. At some point in the early hours, and acting together, you murdered Julia Rawson and then dismembered her body in a terrible and comprehensive act of defilement and indignity, all in the flat. Over the course of the next few days, you then undertook a comprehensive attempt to cover up what you'd done. Only you two know just what happened in the flat, but neither has told the truth. Addressing Maynard Ellis, Mr Justice Sewell said he had shown a significant degree of premeditation, and added, You were fascinated by films involving extreme violence and depravity, and notably these included violent killings, serial killers, necrophilia, and extending to cannibalism. You fantasised about killing someone, including by strangulation. You routinely carried a knife, and would go out with a black hood and thin rope, saying you always had it with you, if the right opportunity arose. Turning to Leesley, the judge highlighted that the former co-op worker was devoted to him after meeting him on the Plenty of Fish dating app back in 2012, which he lied about his age to join, saying, You were enthralled to Nathan Maynard Ellis from the time that you first met him through the online dating site when you were 16, but pretending to be 18 and the evidence from your colleagues at the co-op provides telling support of your devotion to him thereafter. As already indicated, I have concluded that Maynard Ellis instigated the attack on Julia Rawson, but that you immediately joined in. Whilst accepting your involvement was unpremeditated, I am sure that in joining in, you did so with an intent to kill, rather than to cause really serious bodily injury. In my judgment, you were thereupon doing Nathan's bidding and sharing his intent. In the same ready way, you then took part in the dismemberment and all the other aspects of the cover-up. I accept that Nathan was playing the leading role through all this, but at all times you were giving him your immediate and unquestioning support. Following his conviction, David Mason Casey, defending Maynard Ellis, told the court during the sentencing hearing that Maynard Ellis had contracted COVID-19 and had been in and out of hospital four times for treatment to blood clots on his lungs. Mr Mason said, He has been in and out of hospital four times after contracting COVID-19. He has two blood clots on the lung and has been taking anticoagulants. He has been in self-isolation in prison for six weeks, without his things since his conviction. Despite what this man has done, this is inhumane. Doesn't your heart bleed? Let's have a whip round now. Yes, my arse is inhumane. Tom Forster Casey, defending Leesley, told Mr Justice Sewell that the 25-year-old's part in the killing was not premeditated. He argued that the minimum tariff starting point was 15 years, but conceded it be extended with the aggravating features of the case. Maynard Ellis and Leesley were then sentenced to the fixed term of life imprisonment, 
Maynard Dallas to serve a minimum of 30 years, while Leesley was to serve a minimum of 19 years, with a concurrent six-year sentence for disposing of a corpse and four years for perverting the course of justice. Maynard Ellis got a 14-year sentence concurrent for these, each minus the 577 days they'd spent behind bars on remand. The warped killers showed no remorse and said nothing as they were handed their sentences and were led away to begin them. Following sentencing, Julia's best friend and former partner, Elaine Higginson, said, I feel emotional, very emotional. I'm relieved he got 30 years. Another friend, Debbie Maskell, said the sentences provided some closure, but added, I have mixed emotions right now. I can't stop crying. It's still not enough. It could never be enough. They robbed the world of such a beautiful light when they took our due. It will never be over, but now we can start to plan to celebrate her life once things settle down. We knew the details before they were out, but when they were in black and white, it hit me all over again. It's just terrible knowing she's not there and that I won't get any more memories with her. It's the end of an era. No more shenanigans. Debbie also explained that she could no longer even walk past the Bottle and Cork pub, saying, used to have to walk past it every day to go to work, and I couldn't look at it. It made me feel sick. The whole thing has made me more wary. I think if this could happen to her, then it could happen to anyone. And with evil individuals like Maynard Ellis and Leasley about, sadly, I don't think she's very far wrong. Do you? It's a terribly tragic crime, this, and you get the feeling that with this one, hearing of this pair, this was always going to happen somehow, at some time. I would say specifically from Maynard Ellis, and to be honest, I'm amazed it took him so long to do so. To be that obsessed with violence and horror movies, to spend that long looking into darkness, and to have the disturbed personality from a young age it's documented that he had, the sexual offending he was convicted of, well, it's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? I think it a very real possibility that there could be other offences such as these from 2007 to 2019 that may just not have been reported. I don't know if I can categorically agree that he went out searching specifically for a victim to kill that night, because surely you wouldn't choose a victim in a place where you're caught on CCTV for a few hours and an unlikeliest of pairings as it was. I do believe somewhere that evening though, she became Maynard Ellis's fantasy for a victim that he was not letting pass him by, and as soon as she agreed to accompany him back, she was sadly never leaving that flat alive. Perhaps there is some credence that Julia did, against her own better judgement, perhaps even did make a pass at him back there, no one can know, but she was certainly enticed there because of her vulnerability, and horrific to think of, but a very real possibility, just ahead of his birthday, perhaps Julia was even a macabre present to himself, a chance to make something he'd fantasised about for so long into a reality. Horror beyond belief. It's important to stress also that Leesley, his partner of seven years, isn't a background figure in all of this either, despite the emphasis I may have come across as making on Maynard Ellis, though it is clear he is the dominant one of the pit, 
but Leesley is as complicit in this as he is. As awful as it is to consider as well, I personally don't believe it was the actual act of killing that excited Maynard and Leesley overly. Battering someone with a rolling pin when you have a flat full of weaponry, etc., and fantasizing about killing someone, well, you'd surely rather use one of these weapons, wouldn't you, to enrich that fantasy more? No, I think personally that it was what he, they, did with the body once Julia was dead that was the real clincher for them. That's what they will overly remember through the next several years of their sentences. The meticulousness and the careful wrapping of the body parts, plus the extent of dismemberment, much more than needed of to dispose, it just screams it to me, and even dumping them near, somewhere you could walk past regularly, as they did, and smile and know the secret that you shared. Had he not been recognised from that CCTV, giving himself away, showing off his distinct tattoos, and ultimately traced, then this pair would undoubtedly have committed murder once again. There would have been no guilt getting the better of them, no remorse driving them to confess and hand themselves in. They would have refined their plans and learned from what they did wrong the first time, determined to top it, hone it, polish it. And bringing horror and loss to yet countless more people. The amount of recollections and comments concerning Julia I found through researching could have filled several more minutes here. She was a truly loved and is a truly missed person. And I hope it's thoughts of her you take predominantly from the episode. I would as always love to hear your thoughts and feedback on the tale I've brought you in Flat of Horrors, which you can do so in the thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. I'm always about and I'm always willing for a gas with you. With that, it's time for me to shut up and wrap up here now. I shall be back with you soon for another tale. And until we speak next, all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Thanks very much for joining me in the MOG today. Stay safe, and goodbye for now.